And a good piece of the coming fall season leading up to Christmas will be studies each week, or not every, each week, but often on weeks from now till Christmas, about the kingdom. I really see the wisdom of God in this because the way the calendar is playing out under the guidance of the Lord, we're teaching about God's kingship, which is what kingdom really means, in every area of life. And guess what else the Lord brought along at the same season is this conquer thing. So I don't think this is accidental. I think even it wasn't because the leaders are so bright. It's because the Holy Spirit is faithful. (laughs) So it's God addressing different areas of our lives and establishing his son as king over all of it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the definition of the kingdom of God. It's Christ ruling in everything. So let's see what this looks like. This, uh, this, This morning will be very much of an introductory nature to what to a very huge topic, of course, of the kingdom of God. So, Genesis 1, and God said, and it was so. Those words uh, come back over and over again in that opening chapter of the Bible. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and that's all it took, was for God to say it, and there was light. And there were stars by the gazillion. All he had to do was say it. You know what this is? This is God acting as king at the very beginning of the story. Okay, fast forward to the middle of the story. God comes to earth. Talk about a turning point. He begins his public ministry. He's baptized in the Jordan River. He comes out preaching all over Galilee. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 15... We find out the essence or the substance of Jesus' early public preaching, and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. God's kingship is breaking into the world. In what way? Through the ministry of Jesus. The kingship of God is breaking into the world because the king has come. That's the kingship of God, the kingdom of God, in the middle of history. Well, it doesn't stop there. Because at the very end of history, at the wrap-up of the big story, good stories always have a grand bang wrap-up, a climax at the end. And the God story is the best story, and it's got a big climax at the end. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. You don't have to go to the book of Revelation to get this. You get it right in the middle of the epistles. The Corinthians were a bit mixed up about the end times. So Paul is putting some clear, very foundational teaching in front of them. And he says, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, for the trumpet will sound. We're going to come back in a minute to why it has to be a trumpet. What's that all about? But he says, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. These days I feel pretty perishable sometimes. But I'm going to get an imperishable body and so are you. That's going to be the end of God's final, ultimate demonstration of his kingship. So he's, he's the king at the, begin, at the beginning of the story, in the middle, the turning point of the story, and at the climactic wrap-up at the very end, beginning, middle, and end, God is the king. Now, kingdom of God, it's mentioned 111 times, according to my computer. I didn't count them. 111 times in the New Testament. Mark 1.15, according to that verse, 
It's the very first thing Christ talks about when he begins his public preaching. So it's right off the top, right off the bat. What's he talking about? God's kingdom. And then in Acts 1 verse 3, this is about the 40 days of his resurrection appearances just before he ascends to the throne of God. He's still on the earth with his disciples. And according to Luke in Acts 1, what is he talking to them about? Well, look it up, but I'll tell you, he's talking to them, Luke says, about the kingdom of God. So clearly, this is a, this is a hugely important issue. So what is it? What exactly is God's kingdom? Well, it's not a realm if I had a globe, well, we have a world map on the back wall. I couldn't walk back to that map and say the kingdom of God is right here on that map. Because it's not a place like the United Kingdom. It's not that kind of a thing. God's kingdom is a reign, R-E-I-G-N. It's God exercising his kingship, or perhaps an even simpler way to say it, the kingdom of God is simply God Acting as king. He does this at the beginning, he does this in the middle, and he does it at the end. So let's start at the beginning. God acting as king, part one. He brings order to his world. That great chapter that begins the Bible, Genesis 1, about God making everything... If we look at it carefully, it's helpful to note where the story there in Genesis 1, the six days, where it begins and then where it ends. This time when I talk about ending, I'm meaning just the ending of the six days. The chapter takes God's creating work from everything being formless and empty. Think of that phrase, formless and empty, like a dark, cold uncharted swamp there's no dry land there's no light yet at the very very beginning it's dark there's no boundaries there's no structure it's formless and it's also according to Genesis 1 verse 2 it's also empty there are no living things there are no fish no animals there's no light there's no stars there's no people it's empty now that's where God starts Something exists, but it's got no form or fullness. You know, this is really, really good news. You may be sitting here thinking, formless and empty, that sounds like me at the moment. Well, if that's you, this Genesis 1 has got good news for you. Because God has no problem with starting with raw materials. He has no problem starting with something that is formless and is empty. Because when we go then to the end of the story, to the end of the creation account, to Genesis chapter 2 verse 1, we read that everything was, quote, finished, completed. And all the host of them... It was finished in the sense that now there was order, there was structure, there was form. And it's not empty anymore. I went on that source of usually reliable information called Google. And it says that by latest count, biologists say there are something on the scale of 8.7 million species of life in the world. Not 8.7 
animals, but 8.7 million species of animals and plants. Even that number sounded low to me, but whatever we do with that, let's go with that with as, as a hopefully reliable uh, estimate. The world is no longer empty. At the end of day six, there were millions and millions and millions and millions of species of living things. So it's no longer empty, it's full. How does God do this? And God said, and it was so. You know that chapter probably. If you don't, go read it. And this phrase keeps rolling out of the text. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. He doesn't have to work himself into a lather to get things done. Because he's God. He's the king. At the beginning, he brings order to his world. He separates the waters above from the waters below. He makes a place for life to happen. He separates light from darkness, a regular cycle of day and night. Do you see what he's doing? He's bringing order. He gathers the waters that are under the, earth, under the sky into one place. He says, you waters over here, you waters over here, and in the middle you've got North America. Let the dry land appear. I can't resist this. Did you know there was a nation in the world that God gave their own creation event to? It's called Israel. And when they were escaping from Egypt, Moses stood at the edge of the Red Sea, held out his hand over the sea, and God made the waters part and, let, and the dry land appeared where there had been water moments before. And it's the same Hebrew phrase for dry land or dry ground as you get in Genesis 1.9. You know, what? it's showing the significance of God raising up the covenant people. They get their own personal creation event. The waters part and they walk on dry land. Wonderful. Let there be lights in the heavens. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. Let there be lights in the heavens. Why that? To give light on the earth. So we can see where we're going. He's bringing order. He's making life possible. There's another reason he gives the lights. In Genesis 1.14, it says that they will mark out the seasons Now, seasons in Hebrew has a few different meanings. Sometimes it can mean like summer and winter and fall and so forth. Usually the word that's used there in Genesis 1.14 refers to appointed times. That's a good definition. Let the stars mark out the appointed times. You know what it was for? This is all very prophetic and very ahead of its time. It was so that when God had a covenant people, they would know when Passover would be. They keep their eyes on the stars. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's been so many new moons and recent, I've just counted them up. You know what? In another month, it's going to be time for Passover. They had a calendar that God put in the heavens. The the stars and the sun and the moon, they marked out the appointed times. This new world comes with hope included. Parents here know that familiar phrase, you get it at Christmas time. Batteries not included. Remember that? Well, this world does not come that way. It comes with everything included that needs to be included, including hope. This world comes with hope built in. You might be wondering, okay, how do I get that from Genesis 1? Here's where we get it. There's an intriguing phrase. It's a bit odd sounding to our ears today about the days. 
it doesn't say, and there was morning and there was evening the first day, and then there was morning and evening the second day. No, you know what it says, don't you? It says it the other way around. And there was evening, and then there was morning the first day. Why does it start in the evening? There are different reasons given by scholars on this, different interpretations, but I'm right. Okay, the, the, this, this is the reason. If you come back next Sunday, I'm going to be preaching on humility, so we can do that. <laughs> God knew when he inspired the composition of this text, whether it was Moses himself or if he inherited a written text, inspired written text that was already there, we don't know that. When he, God inspired the composition of this text, he, God knew that his chosen people would one day go through some very, very, very dark times. Four centuries in Egypt. Four centuries under unworthy leaders, the realm of the judges. Seventy years in Babylon, the world headquarter of idolatry and spiritual darkness. He knew they were going to face some very dark times. So what's he do? He puts a clue in the story of the creation of the world Darkness, yes, don't try to deny it. You will go through evening, you'll go through darkness. And there was evening, which means darkness, and there was morning. It's a sign of hope. It's a cosmology with hope built in. This is the way the universe works, and it's the way, part of the way God works. If you're in a dark era now, you're four centuries in Egypt or something like that, morning is coming. It says so in the creation account. This part of the way God acts as king. God acting as king. That's the kingdom of God. Genesis 2.1. I'm going to move on, get to the coming of Christ. But one juicy bit looking. Genesis 2.1. At the end of day six, thus the heavens, this is Genesis 2.1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. Now, all the host of them, that's the 8.7 million species of living things. But note that word, finished. It doesn't mean finished in the sense it's over. It doesn't mean finished if you're exhausted and you say, I think I'm finished. It's not that kind of finished. It's finished in the sense of a job amazingly well done. It's all in place now. It's like when a carpenter builds something and he sticks back, stands back and he says, wow, that looks good. I did a good job. You know where else in the Old Testament this same Hebrew verb appears? It appears in Genesis 39, verse 22. We won't study that now, but you can jot it down. Did I just say Genesis? I meant Exodus. Exodus 39, verse 22. And it's about when the many craftsmen and artists people that did all kinds of creative things finished after months and months of work along under the, the leadership of Moses and they have finished the tabernacle. It's a splendid prophetic and symbolic tent representing worship and the holiness of God. There's structure to it. There's order to it. There's form to it. Curtains the outer court, the inner court, the holy of holies, and everything is coated in gold. And what an amazing thing. Finally, it was done. Exodus 39, 
They're 22, and all these artists and craftsmen, they stand back, and it's, it's done. Then the tabernacle was finished. Wow. It's the same verb Genesis uses in Genesis 2.1. God steps back and he says, I did a good job. It's finished. It's complete. At the beginning of the story, God is king and he acts as king by bringing order to his world. Okay, fast forward. God acting as king, which is what the kingdom means, part two. He brings salvation to his world. He brings order to his world in the very beginning. And now in the middle of the story, the world, of course, by this time, has got completely derailed because of sin. But God doesn't wash his hands of it and walk away. No, he sends salvation. He sends a savior. He brings salvation to his world. God acting as king. Mark 1.15, the kingdom of God is at hand. Why is that so? Well, you see it in the picture. The kingdom is at hand because the king has come. What's the first thing the king does when he shows up on the shore of the Sea of Galilee? He sees two blokes named Simon and Andrew minding their own business, doing their fishing business, mending their nets, attending to, this is their job. And the king comes to them and he says, lay that down and follow me. Think of those words, those two words. They are very fateful, pivotal, watershed words in the Bible and in our lives. The king invades our space and says, follow me. April the 9th, 1967, the king broke into my life and said, you, follow me. You come. He may be, that same king, may be saying that today to you. If he is, open your heart and let him call you to himself. He, he bound Simon and Andrew, and then James and John on the back of that moments later, and eventually 12 disciples, he said, follow me, follow me, follow me. He was connecting them to himself. He binds us to himself. He becomes the center of everything. And you know, there's almost always something we have to relinquish when the king says, follow me. For these guys, it was a business. Nothing wrong with being fishermen, nothing at all. But all of a sudden, something of a higher priority invaded. Follow me. And they laid down the fish, they laid down the nets, and they followed him down the beach. He binds us to himself. God acting as king. Could go for the next slide. He brings salvation to his world. A few verses after what we just looked at, follow me, Genesis, uh, um, Mark 1.26 Jesus goes into a synagogue, is in the village of Capernaum. He's preaching the kingdom in the synagogue, and somebody, who, namely a demon, that doesn't like the kingdom of God, he starts shrieking out and opposing Jesus and blaspheming. All Jesus has to do is say a few words, you come out of him. And instantly the, the, the man shrieks because of the turmoil in him, but the demon leaves. 
And the people in the synagogue might not, perhaps didn't look too differently from our gathering here this morning. They see this happen and they, their eyes are wide as dinner plates. <gasps> Boy, the Pharisees can't do that. They were amazed. They were amazed. It's the first appearance in the Gospel of Mark to one of his big themes. Do a study sometime. The word amazed in the Gospel of Mark. And this is the first one. The last one is Pilate. When he says, don't you have any self-defense? They're accusing you of all sorts of things. You're going to end up getting crucified and you don't smarten up. And Jesus remains silent. And it says, and Pilate was amazed. Everywhere Christ goes, he amazes people. They don't know what to do with him. And the people in the synagogue here in Capernaum are amazed because of Christ's authority. You know what they're seeing? They're seeing in front of them, demonstrated in flesh and blood, they're seeing the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God acting as king. God the Father has sent God the Son to be king on earth, and the Son of God, God the Son, says to this demon, there's not room in this town for you and me both. Now you leave. And the demon shrieks and goes. We saw a moment ago how part of the kingdom is the king binding people to himself. Well, now he's doing the other side of that. He binds Simon, Andrew, James, and John to himself. And then this poor man in the synagogue, we don't know his name, but he unbinds him. He binds the the disciples and he unbinds this guy and gets him free from the powers of darkness. God acting as king. He brings salvation to his world. Another one, God acting as king, he heals the sick. Mark 1, 31, right after the driving out of the demon in the synagogue, Jesus goes to Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house, and she is bedridden. She has a high fever. Jesus takes her hand, and he lifts her up, and it says the fever left. I always like that image. It's sort of parallel to the demons leaving this guy in the previous miracle. Jesus comes into the situation and the demons leave. Here it's a parallel. Jesus comes into the situation, takes this lady's hand, and the sickness leaves. Fever, there's not room in this town for you and me both, so you've got to go. Jesus in, king in, kingship in, kingdom in, sickness out. He brings salvation to his world. God acts as king. Next installment, Mark 1, verse 41. 141, a a leper comes to Jesus and he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. We don't know how the man knew that. Maybe Jesus' fame was beginning to spread. We don't have all the background details here. But he knows Jesus can do it. He wonders if he's willing. And Jesus said, I am willing. And then there's a very dramatic moment, if you know a bit about that culture, because, you know, Jesus was capable of commanding healing at a distance. In John chapter 4, no, 5, there's one, he speaks healing across many miles to the nobleman's son. So he can heal without physical touch. In this situation, he opts to use physical touch. He reached out and touched the man. You probably know a bit about the background here. That would have been scandalous in those days. Because if you touch someone who is ceremonially unclean, well, in an instant, you become ceremonially unclean. This is the rigorous, radical holiness of the law. So the guy thinks probably he won't want to even have any contact with me. But he not only wants to heal the man, he exercises that healing power through touch. 
And instead of the usual mechanism of if you touch a leper, now you're unclean, the uncleanness of the leper goes into you, Jesus reverses that. Now the cleanness that's in Jesus goes into the leper. He reverses the usual flow. He's instantly cleansed, instantly healed. God acting as king. All of these miracles come out of that statement in 115. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's breaking into the world. And these are examples of what that kingship looks like. It's cleanness in place of uncleanness. And it comes maybe to a climax on the very next miracle. It's the famous one, the beginning of Mark chapter 2, where the four men come bringing their paralyzed friend. They pull off the top of the roof of the house, lower the man into the midst of the crowd beneath, in front of Jesus. And Jesus says two pivotal, life-changing things. Your sins are forgiven. Rise and walk. And the second one flows out of the first. There's some there that are scandalized. They think Jesus is blaspheming. Who does he think he is claiming to forgive sins? Now, they were wrong on one point because they didn't think Christ had the authority to declare their forgiveness of sins. They were wrong on that. They were right about something else, namely that, it, that this really was an authority issue. Does he have the authority to declare forgiveness? Yes. Jesus knows that, and so he says, so that you may know. So that you may know. That's an important biblical phrase. So that the nations may know Christ is Lord. Well, he says that to his critics in the moment in this house. So that you may know, Pharisees, Sadducees, elders and teachers of the law, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he turns to the leper and he says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. You know what all these signs have in common? They all, without exception, trace back to the results of the fall in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve broke covenant with God. Sin came into the world, and with sin comes death. With sin comes sickness. With, with, with sin comes uh, demonic influence. All of those things. And now, one by one, God the King, through Christ the King, is breaking into these situations and reversing them. Demons, you're out of here. Disease, the fever left her. Uncleanness, not anymore. Be cleansed, he commands. Guilt, he says to the man in the stretcher, your sins are forgiven. End of conversation. They're done. And then the paralysis that came with that. One by one, he's overturning the results of sin, overturning the impact of the fall. This is what the kingdom is all about. Whatever kind of damage there may be going on in your life, whatever kind of damage gets unearthed in this conquer thing, whatever, it's clear by the end of Mark 1 that Jesus Christ can handle it. That's why God, that's why God sent him. That's the kingdom breaking in in the middle of history. Beginning, middle, and end, Christ is king. God is king. It's God acting as king. So God acting as king, part three. It may surprise you to know I took trumpet lessons once. I think I was about 10 or 12 years old. And the family next door, their son, Tommy, was exceptionally, brilliantly musical. 
He could play, just learn how to play any instrument in about a week. And I remember after three months, I was trying to learn the C scale on this trumpet. And one day I heard a voice from across next door, Perry, give up. (laughs) I think I did just that. I quit trumpet lessons. I was very embarrassed. There's something about trumpets. When you hear a trumpet, it like it announces something. That great pivotal battle scene in the Lord of the Rings films. Remember when they charge into battle outside Minas Tirith and they sound that ram's horn and that means charge. Very vivid moment. Now listen to something better than Lord of the Rings, namely 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to start in verse 26. Just listen in. The last enemy to be defeated. An enemy being defeated. It sounds like he's talking about a war. And he is. The last enemy to be defeated is death. Down to verse 51. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet shall sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed 54 then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory. I believe that's from Hosea 13. I'm not certain, but I think that's it. He's quoting Hosea. Death is swallowed up in victory. And then 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now the key to this moment, and the reason this is so big in the kingdom story, cover to cover in the Bible, is what a trumpet means. And the biblical Old Testament background of sounding the trumpet. You know, they say that the key, the key to the New Testament is the Old Testament. If you're reading something in the Gospels or the Epistles that you can't get your head around, here's some good advice. See if there's any kind of background to that idea or that detail in the Old Testament. And often that'll be the clue. So the trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15, why can't it be a banjo? Here's why. It's the background scripturally in the God story of the sounding of the trumpet. For example, Leviticus 25 verses 9 and 10. Leviticus 25 verses 9 and 10. The background here in this part of the law, and Leviticus is pure law. It's a long, detailed, complex book. You get to 25 and they talk about something called the Jubilee year. Every 50 years, all debts were canceled without exception. I'm talking here physical, pardon me, uh, financial debts canceled. So if due to your own mismanagement, you had fallen into debt or whatever the reason, if you had had to turn your property, like here's here's the deed to my house, I'm so much in in debt now, I've got to get some cash, so here's the deed to my house, and I'll try and pay it back maybe someday, whatever. At the end of the 50th year, no, correction, it wasn't at the end of the year, it was on the Day of Atonement, very interestingly. That was the day they did this. 
in the annual day of atonement, in the 50th year, God took debts and he went like this. Is that good news? <laughs> one of your debts is sin. One of my debts is sin. Hence, in some translations of the Lord's prayer, forgive us, forgive us our debts. The day of Jubilee was the announcement of the cancellation of debts. Now, how did the people throughout the land of Israel know that that day had come? Well, the answer was easy. They sent Levites up and down, and it specifically says in, in verse 10, they would sound the trumpet throughout the land. I love that little phrase, throughout the land. Saying when they would hear that trumpet, hey, I knew the 50th year was coming soon, but I didn't realize it was already here. Yeah, it was already there. They hear the trumpet and they know that God had come. Their debts are finished. And you, if, you, if I was holding somebody's deed to their property because they had been in debt to me, you know what I had to do as the debt holder, as the, the, the creditor? I had to give them back the deed. God has reversed everything from the, the previous 50 years. So the sounding of a trumpet has to do with the cancellation of debt. Cancellation of the consequences of sin. Hold that, park that in your brain for a moment. There's another trumpet scene in the Old Testament, one you all know is Joshua chapter 6, and it's the, the storming of Jericho. The storming of Jericho. They, they surrounded the city. They were marching around and marching around uh, six days, seven days. They marched around. When it came to the final day, that day when they marched around it, they started, they sounded trumpets and then they stood and the, the walls collapsed Jericho was, was a stronghold of the enemy a stronghold of the enemy they would never possess the land and they, unless first they dealt with Jericho you know what according to the story what the thing that the people did that brought down the walls <laughs> was they sounded trumpets okay so we're hearing this these pieces fit together now trumpets it means your debts are forgiven. Trumpets, it means God is storming the strongholds, the last strongholds of the enemy. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy is death. So when that trumpet goes off, it doesn't matter if you've been in the ground for 250 years or whatever, that was irrelevant. We will be raised imperishable. And death, the ultimate consequence of the fall, the ultimate consequence of my sin and your sin will be forever overcome. It's like God says to death, I win, you lose. I'm king, you're not. Now there's that intriguing thing that Paul says with this, we close. It's almost like Paul, when he's quoting Hosea, oh, death, where's your victory? It's almost like he, Paul, is mocking death. We get of the next slide. Here's a picture of a crowd probably at a football match. And if you look at their faces and their gestures, it seems that they're mocking the opposing team. You know, the one woman's got her thumbs down and all that, and it's often at sporting events, well, people will do that. You know what? That's what the whole universe is going to do when that trumpet goes off. And the other team is death. 
along with Satan and sin and all the rest of it, they're going to lose and God's going to win. And the trumpet announces, he's God and nobody else is. The kingdom of God is God acting as king. The whole universe will cheer. Remember when you were on the playground when you were six years old? Nah, 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 nah. That's what children do when they, they mock the other team. The church, the angels are going to go na 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 over death, the great enemy. If you're not sure you're in that crowd this morning, come up and talk to us at the end. God wants you in that crowd, cheering when God wins in the end. Why all this is good news? I'll turn it back to Norm here. Why all this is good news? The kingdom of God... It's God acting as king. Because God acts as king, we live in an ordered world. We don't live under water. We don't live in darkness. The sun will come up tomorrow. We live in an ordered world. That's part of God's kingship. Second, because God acts as king, the effects of the fall, demon possession, sickness, uncleanness, etc., can be overcome. God's in the business working through his Son and his Holy Spirit, God's in the business of reversing the consequences of sin in your life. We can welcome him in because it's something he's already committed to doing. It's what his kingdom is all about. Because God acts as king, we will all be changed. We'll be raised imperishable with glorified bodies just like Jesus had when he rose from the dead. Oh, death, Where is your victory? Amen.